0: You're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership. Hi everyone, my name is Frank Rock, and welcome to the Season 6 premiere of the From the Hack Curling Podcast. We'll get to this week's three excellent guests shortly, but I wanted to take a moment to share with all of you just how cool of a moment this episode is for me. I grew up in a small town of a few hundred people in the northern part of the province of Ontario. Back when the only sports we got on TV were Hockey Night in Canada, the Wide World of Sports and a little bit of baseball here and there during the baseball season. When I was in grade 6, the principal at our school got a subscription to Sports Illustrated, and it was SI that introduced me to the NFL, the NBA, college football, March Madness, and many other sports, sporting events, and prominent athletes. Sports Illustrated has been my sports bible ever since, so the fact that my humble curling podcast can now be found on a Sports Illustrated website is a little mind-blowing for me. On a related note, I started curling before the internet was really much of a thing, and the Curling News was then the easiest way to get the latest information on what was happening in a sport in Canada and around the world. The fact that I will now be a contributor to the Curling News website is also extremely exciting for me. In other words, I'm really looking forward to being part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated partnership. For those of you that are new around here, From the Hack has evolved into one of the main media outlets where curling fans can hear directly from all the key individuals involved in the sport around the world. Since launching in 2015, From the Hack has included interviews with 30 Olympic medalists, over 70 world champions, as well as hundreds of other players, coaches and administrators from 14 different curling nations. The From the Hack podcast is also part of the Curling Podcast Network. That also includes the Two Girls in the Game podcast and the Curling Legends podcast. And I'm proud to mention that both of these excellent shows are now also part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated partnership. And I'd encourage you to also give those two podcasts a listen. All right, let's get down to business. My three guests this week include 2018 Olympic gold medalist John Schuster of the U.S., Five-time Briar participant Mike McCune of Manitoba, who seemed on a men's event in Penticton this past weekend, and who also happens to be one of the best interviews in curling. And finally Sarah Bencaran, a PhD student in cross-cultural psychology and a curler. Sarah and I discussed what it was like for her as one of the very few Canadian Muslims competing on the junior curling circuits in Quebec and Ontario. And as attempts continue to diversify the sport, Sarah shares how the curling community can make the sport more welcoming for her and other individuals from racialized groups. Now, traditionally, before I get to my first interview of each episode, I run an ad for one of the sponsors that have been so good to us over the past few years. This season, From the Hack has not approached any of our usual sponsors because we understand that the pandemic and the limited curling season so far has made it difficult on most curling stakeholders. That said, I want to thank Hardline Curling, Jet Ice, Ashram Curling Supplies and Equipment, and the Curling Zone for their support over the years, and we look forward to working with them again when the curling community, and the world as a whole for that matter, has turned the page on the COVID-19 pandemic, which hopefully, with the recent vaccine announcements, happens sooner than later. (laughs) Our first guest this week and this season is John Schuster, a seven-time United States champion and a two-time Olympic medalist, including a memorable gold medal win at the 2018 Olympics in Pyeongchang. When most casual curling fans last saw you, John, you were busy winning the U.S.'s first ever Olympic gold medal in curling at the 2018 Games in Pyeongchang. We are now three years removed from that moment. Do you still find yourself looking back sometimes and thinking, man, I'm an Olympic champion? Yeah, I I guess being
1: a four-time Olympian and being there four times, it might even make it a little bit more surreal for me that, you know, that now after the fourth one, you know, became an Olympic champion where, you know, we worked so hard to get to the olympics and to give ourselves a chance to stand on a podium and sit on a podium but yeah to, to look back and and think yeah we i won
0: the pinnacle of my sport is uh you gotta pick yourself once in a while one of the perks of winning an olympic gold medal especially in curling a sport which seems to fascinate american sports fans every four years is that you often get opportunities thrown at you that might not otherwise come your way in your case you appeared on the tonight show with jimmy fallon among many others how surreal were those first few months after the olympics that was an incredible, I mean, we'll say six months even,
1: um, to, to do some of the things we did are, you know, things, you see people doing things like, you know, throwing out a ceremonial first pitch of a game, and I'm like, ah, I'd like to throw it, we did it, threw it of some random Twins game prior, but, you know, there we were standing on a field walking, like, across as they're announcing who we are, opening at the home opener for, you know, the Twins, and, you know, dropping the throwing a curling rock on a sheet of hockey ice at an NHL outdoor game. I would tell people I was hoping someday I'd get a chance to see an NHL outdoor game, and there we are throwing a curling rock out on the surface before a game. It's ridiculous. Um, you know, all that stuff. And, yeah, being being on, on the Tonight Show with Jimmy, like all of all of the things we did, going to the SBC everything was way beyond anything, you know, I didn't think of any of that stuff while we were out there curling or even as I was training to, you know, try to win the Olympics. You know, that, that's the stuff you don't think about. So to, to get all those opportunities, I think we did a great job really cherishing and, and getting, you know, we got t- tons of pictures. My wife just put together an amazing um, photo album of following the Olympics and uh, pretty incredible to look back and, and see all those amazing memories that we made in those six months.
0: As I mentioned a moment ago, John, uh, curling is one of the sports that seems to draw a lot of attention from the American audience during each Olympics, but it hasn't always translated into a huge increase in viewership or interest in the sport by casual fans between Olympics. Do you believe that the sport is getting closer to getting over the hump, as it were, in the U.S. market and perhaps maintain a larger audience throughout an Olympic cycle and not just during those two weeks at the Olympics? We're definitely getting closer to that hump. And I think following the Olympics, we saw
1: exactly that. Um, not just 2018, but 2019. And then again, on the schedule for 2020, which didn't happen, you know, in in the U.S., our World Championships, almost every single one of our games is going to be live in the U.S., not just like some tape delay package. Um, they're going to be showing full curling games of World Championships, and they did that in 2018 and 2019. So that, I think, was, was a definite something that, you know, they had had a few here and there, but the number that were now showing up, you know, on TV, along with Curling Night in America, which is a past package show, obviously, that, you know, they're real games, but they're not shown live. But, um, you know, with that happening, we definitely saw Curling becoming, you know, a little bit more, like, the ball was rolling. So it'll be interesting to see with, you know, I mean, obviously, coming out, of, hopefully coming out of the pandemic here in before too long, if we can, you know, keep that traction that we had. But, I I think this next Olympics is going to be a huge opportunity for, you know, us as a sport in our country to, you know, get that traction and hopefully, you know, continue the ability to get ourselves and our sport, you know, on television in front of our national audience, much like it is in Canada.
0: You've made a lineup change uh, since those 2018 Olympics uh, when uh, Tyler George, your third on that gold medal winning team, uh, retired. And you recruited Chris Plies to fill his spot in the lineup. Now, you've been uh, playing with Chris for two full seasons now. And I was wondering if you've been happy with the progression of your team over the first half of this Olympic cycle. As, as, far,
1: as, as far as Chris goes, we had a you know, really great first season together. And I thought we were making some pretty good strides. And we had a really, really tough schedule because you know we got into pretty much all the slams and we were playing all the top events on the tour, and uh, and you know found ourselves you know not kind of trailing behind a couple of U.S. teams in points, but I think it had a lot to do with the competition we were playing and not necessarily the the progression we had. And I think you know our national championship showed us that when we went there and had the ability to go undefeated. And uh, and after the I, I thought December, January, we were kind of making leaps, and and we definitely put ourselves in a position. When I thought we were going to contend for a world championship, um, I not just thought. I, I knew we were in position to contend because everything had, – we had really found a rhythm and found, you know, a couple things that we had figured out in the last few months that we had put into – kind of into play. And, yeah, so, um, you know, with that, we were very excited to start this season, too. But, unfortunately, you know, our world down here in the U.S. compared to where it is in Canada is a little different, and, uh, you know, we haven't even been on the ice and played – a real end against anybody yet this year and here we are in November where you know we probably had six or eight events in already had it been a normal year so all we can do is do what we can at home and, and for me that's you know I'm in the best shape I've ever been in right now I've done a lot of off ice work and then we had we got ice not too long ago and started some on ice stuff going but even that our club had had some COVID going apparently around so that's on uh, pause for a little bit here too so you know all we can do is play the cards that were dealt and and hopefully You know, when we do get back on the ice as a team, you know, we get enough practices and practice time together and a few games in that, you know, we're ready, you know, to pick up where we left off.
0: We'll get to the impact that COVID-19 has had on the sport of curling in a moment, but I want to take you back to last March, John, when the virus really hit home for you and, uh, and your family when your wife became infected with COVID-19 at the U.S. Club Championships in Maryland, which took place the same week that the NHL and NBA suspended their seasons. Can you take us back for a few moments and share what that experience may have been like for you and your family, especially early on when so little was known about the virus? You know, there was
1: grumblings that stuff was going to maybe be cancelled, and I was actually, I went fishing on a snowmobile and fishing trip in Canada uh, while my wife was at the Club National Championships out in Washington, D.C., and you know, we had chatted a tiny bit before she left about, hair, hey, You know, are we like really concerned? And said, well, you know, it doesn't seem to be crazy serious yet. And and so she went out there and, um, yeah. And they were they did things like their team that nobody was curling with masks on, but they didn't shake hands before and after games. They tapped brooms, and there was more cleaning going on at that curling club than, you know, Sarah had ever seen. And and she got home and she had crazy back pain, and and then quickly realized that she was having trouble breathing, and and then we started traveling around them, and they realized that a very, very large number of competitors at our club nationals had it, and and you know, and everything had pretty much been canceled before that even happened. I mean, the women's worlds had got canceled that Saturday, and then they, had, you know, had talked about canceling, you know, the men's mixed doubles, and and yeah, so you know, when that was happening, there we were trying to kind of crunching numbers and figuring out, well, okay, well, you know, is this, do we need to put Sarah in our basement of our house? And um, yeah, so we were some of the first. We're almost like guinea pigs, I feel like, and uh, but it really put it into perspective for us with, you know, if okay, well, you know, we actually decided when she got home, when everything was closing, that we were going to treat it like she had had it, or that we had, had it as a family, so we were going to, you know, have somebody get our groceries, and then, sure enough, she had it, and we stayed home for a month, never left our house, never left our yard, people dropped groceries out in our front step, never opened, touched our doors, <laughs> so, um, yeah, so. We're very cautious and, and pretty proud that we don't believe that she, anything that she brought home that we passed along to anybody, which is, you know, that's the most important thing for, I think, that everybody thinks of others and, and figures out, okay, well, yeah, if you are being affected by it, that you affect as few people as possible, and that's how we, you know, get past pandemic.
0: I'm just wrapping up a special episode from my website where I chat with elite curlers about the impact that the virus has had on them from different perspectives. And the one thing that many of them mention is a mental impact that the virus has had on them above and beyond the initial period of lockdown, homeschooling, etc. Most elite curlers have structured their schedules and routine around the sport. And the virus has forced them to alter their well-established routines of preparing for the season and for different events on the schedule. How have you gone about dealing with the impact that the virus has certainly had on your schedule your typical routine, especially come August and September when you're typically in go mode preparing for the season I've honestly just kind of embraced I was like you know what you know, and our team kind of embraced it too where we have not had
1: a we curled august all the way through May every single year for the last decade, and you know we never had a chance to you know i've not that I've missed a lot of stuff with my family because you know I stayed home with my kids and I don't have a job as well you know I hadn't Hardly done any pheasant hunting, and I only generally get two days of deer hunting, and I haven't fished a ton. So for me, like, I actually took it that this this break for me was going to be to catch up mentally with a lot of the things that maybe I'd missed out on the last decade. And you know, I've I've had I decided that I was going to kind of fill this pandemic with you know as much joy as I possibly could away from the curling ice because I've had plenty of it on the curling ice, and you know, with my family and friends, curling related too, but to get a chance to do some of that stuff I did before I was this, you know, high-level competitive curler was um, was really refreshing. And I think for me, like, the brain break, yeah, it gave me, you know, kind of I, I, I'm in a great place where when we finally do get to get out back on the ice and curl again, I'm going to be very refreshed and ready, you know, for the next part of this Olympic run. So, I mean, that's kind of the the way that I've looked at it. and I mean, obviously, it's got to be very – You know, down here, fluid, because I was throwing curling rocks as of October 15th, and now I'm not throwing curling rocks again because the place that I was throwing, it doesn't
0: have ice again. It seems like every week now, John, we're receiving news that additional events uh, for the 2020-21 curling season have been cancelled. Just last week, uh, the World Curling Federation cancelled the 2021 World Juniors. What have you heard when it comes to U.S. Nationals? Uh, Is your team still expecting that Nationals will take place? And if so, what do you think it might look like? I know that USA Curling right now is working extremely
1: hard trying to figure out um, how to make our national championships happen, and, and that they're and to happen safely, not just happen. So I know they've been looking at bubble scenarios down in the same place we we're supposed to have them down in Cedar Rapids. So um, I've heard, you know, and this is all hearsay. I haven't heard it from any of our national people, but you know that they're they're doing really well, but it's still with you know, the pandemic and the changes that, you know, who could even be ahead, you know, with the change in the presidency and, and all that kind of stuff too, that, you know, it, it might be more of a 50-50 scenario. So for us, you know, we're preparing to, you know, hopefully be curling ready and game ready when when our nationals should happen. And then, you know, if our nationals don't happen then and the worlds do happen, then I think we have to figure out a way to be game ready for the world championships because um, in case we end up being that team that goes to the world. So I've heard that's the case, but I don't know that for a fact. So, yeah, for us, basically, we just have to do what we can to to be ready when, when we finally get an opportunity to go compete, whether that's at some event before nationals or nationals or worlds or – or Olympic trials next year, who knows?
0: There's been talk of creating a quote-unquote curling bubble, if you will, somewhere in Canada in the new year, so that several events could be hosted, including the Canadian Championships, such as the Briar for the men, the Scotties for the women, and the two uh, late-season Grand Slams that have yet to be cancelled by the Grand Slam of curling, as well as the Men's World Championship. What would be involved for your team if you were invited to and decided to compete in those two late-season Grand Slam events and the Men's Worlds? The way it seems right now is that we'd have to have a 14-day quarantine, which... Um, I don't believe that we could figure
1: out any way to work an ice venue into that. If that was the case, then, yeah, we'd be coming to Canada two weeks early, finding a place where we can quarantine and also get on the ice, but I don't think that's going to be in the cards. So what we're probably looking at is um, with the 14-day quarantine of, like, a strict quarantine for U.S. people going into Canada, we're probably looking more at a scenario where we'd come up there, you know, between 20 and 30 days early because, obviously, I I never take two weeks off during the season, throwing Throwing stones and practicing. So, um, nor do my teammates or any real any real curler that wants to have a chance of winning anything. So, <laughs> so to take two weeks off and then think you can step back on the ice and go compete at a world championship or a slam obviously not the real world. So, um, you know, hopefully for us, I think our our best chance of not having to leave a month early to go to a world championship or a grand slam scenario is going to be for. Uh, you know, some sort of vaccine to change the restrictions of travel from Canada and the U.S., but um, if that isn't the case, I think um, we'll probably be residing in Canada for a month prior to any major competitions that we're
0: play in. And finally, John, on a lighter note, uh, you've just made a new addition to the Schuster clan by adding a new puppy to the family. What can you tell us about the puppy, and where did the name Herschel come from? He's
1: doing all right. He's definitely going to keep me busy, and, you know, this curling season kind of afforded us, like, well, we're... Our our current dog is nine and she's still doing pretty good, but she we hunt with her a little bit and whatever, so um uh, but he's doing all right and Herschel our children's names both we'll start with L. We got Luke and Logan. And our first pet we took us three or four days and we came up with Hazel, which is our older dog, and then we got a fish last year who somehow he liked to hide, so our kids named him Heidi. Um, so we had two H pets so we figured we better keep on the H pet theme and uh yeah, there are 100 names out there, but Sarah and I are pretty big Walking Dead fans, all the way back to the beginning of the show. And there was a doctor in there named Herschel, and our kids also liked Hershey because obviously he's about the he's a solid brown German short hair Pointer. That's about the color of a Hershey's chocolate bar. And uh, and we had we joked with our neighbors last week that about something about if you'd ever you know go get a Hershey's chocolate bar, if you were just uh, you know they're great for s'mores and great in things, but uh, to just go pick one, and he was the last one left.
0: The Penticton Curling Club in Penticton, B.C. recently hosted an event that included several of the top Canadian men's teams, including 2014 Olympic gold medalist Brad Jacobs, four-time world champion Glenn Howard, two-time world champion Kevin Cooey, and Brendan Botcher, who has reached the final at three consecutive briars. The winner of the event and our next guest on this year's season premiere is Mike McCune. Mike, the event in Penticton was your team's first event of the season. We'll get to results and stuff in a moment, but I wanted to start by asking you how it felt to finally be out there with the guys, throwing some rocks, and competing against other teams.
2: You know, it it, it felt really good. You know, we kind of relished in this opportunity, um, not just, uh, you know, and, and not just in the curling itself, but, uh, you know, it, uh, mentally it was really good. For, you know, everybody's, everybody's going through... Uh, you know some sort of anxiety in some way or another and this uh you know this felt really good to be able to do this event and and uh you know and and and, and in how the event uh you know really approached things and just went over the top with uh keeping us all safe so this felt really good uh mentally i, I think all the boys feel feel really good and uh grateful that you know we had the opportunity to play in penticton
0: it's interesting to hear you mention how the event in penticton was good mentally for you and the team it's something i've been hearing from a lot of players during the pandemic elite athletes tend to be very scheduled and routine oriented and one of the things that the pandemic has done is that it's thrown a lot of uncertainty into everyone's routine and schedule
2: yeah it it really i mean curling just just like any sport is likely to uh to, to any athlete uh who takes it seriously competitive um like it, it's kind of part of the fabric of who you are and when that's disrupted to the great extent that that it has been um yeah it's, it's hard it's 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 not uh it's not easy uh what you know what, what all athletes in all sports are going through
0: as we mentioned earlier, Penticton was your team's first event of the season, whereas several of the other teams at the event had already played in a few spiels. Did you and the guys put any pressure on yourselves to perform well uh, heading into Penticton, or were you going in there comfortable in the knowledge that you might be rusty compared to the others, and it really didn't put any pressure on yourselves to come out of Penticton with the type of results you came home with?
2: Uh, I would say we went in with the expectation that we would show some rust, but we were hopeful that you know we could play well enough to make a playoff appearance appearance uh but but definitely we knew uh coming in uh and even with some of our uh obtaining practice ice difficulties back home we, we knew we were going to be in tough so yeah I, I would agree that we we didn't have you know very little pressure on ourselves as far as um as far as the results uh and and, and it showed early uh Uh, Steve the team of Steve Laycock and Jim Cotter gave us a whooping the first game so was a little eye opening
0: (laughs) did the resulting Penticton give you a sense of encouragement about where your team is at the moment and moving forward or is it hard to put any weight into this kind of result especially since it might be hard to maintain your form considering your events this season will mostly be spread out
2: I think it's both of what you said we you can put a little bit of weight into it to say hey you know what we've kind of built towards the last couple of years is still there even with limited practice that depth that we've built as a team that unity uh those those kind of systems that we've created uh that's still there so that's that's that was really that was exciting to see Uh, a little bit unexpected uh personally i think for all of us on the team that that we're able to kind of get back to that form so so quickly but to the other side um like you said uh we might be in uh you know in a month or two kind of almost like having to restart again we'll, we'll see what uh the next little bit brings but um yeah it's kind of uh that's where we're at uh in the schedule uh a lot of unknowns mm-hmm. and pretty happy that we still you know, we can kind of still say we we've got this. uh we're gonna have to kind of reboot i think uh in, in the new year.
0: Mike, I think it's fair to say that there were a lot of expectations uh, placed on your team. The first year you and Reed got together. And to be honest, I think you'd agree that the first year was a difficult one and that your form and results improved significantly last season. How proud are you of the team? The progress you've all shown since that difficult first season together.
2: Now on the head, uh, you said it, um, that first year was rough. Uh, that's to put it probably lightly. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, uh, Uh, So some people weren't sure that you know, and even there's probably some doubt in ourselves that we could turn it around. Uh, So I'm absolutely very proud of the guys and the work we put in the last, uh, especially the last uh, kind of uh, 12 months leading into the into the Briar in, in, in Kingston, where I think we we performed just to a tremendous extent and and just kind of needed to tidy up a couple little things uh, and could have seen ourselves in in a deeper playoff. That's uh yeah I'm I'm proud of the guys and and our focus is is really tightened and changed uh, and the unity has grown as a team. It's amazing when those things aren't there. It's slippery slope. So it uh, maybe that rough year uh, really Ended up being a situation where it kind of refocused us, uh, made us go some places where uh, we hadn't gone or forgot about to actually get to a point where we were actually, actually a team that could be in contention.
0: And finally, Mike. Obviously, lots of talking curling right now about how to make sure everyone is safe while at a spiel. And from everything I've heard, it sounds like the folks in Penticton did a first-class job of that. How did the organizers in Penticton go about making the club and the event as safe as possible for you and the other participants?
2: Kathy Jones and her team at Penticton just went 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 above and beyond, um, just with. Temperature checks at the door, um, athlete-only areas, masks at all times, uh, constant, uh, you know, regular interval um, sanitizing of, of, of different uh, touch surfaces. And, and then how the committee just, you know, I, I don't know how they do it. They still took care of the athletes in just uh, a way that uh, Penticton uh, is, is well-known for, um, e- despite, you know, all the difficult. I really... Hope that uh, you know something comes out of this uh, in, in a really positive way that helps um, other events uh, still uh, still run in a safe manner. But yeah, I, I would encourage anybody to to reach out to Kathy and her and her team at the Penticton Curling Club. Uh, you know if they're if they're looking for kind of a template on on how to do this, and uh, I know all the teams. Even you know, it's one thing inside the curling club. But definitely uh, the guidelines and and whatnot that the teams were following for their their behavior and actions outside the curling club. You know everybody, uh, as far as I was aware, was very respectful and and uh, and safe in their interactions in the community and and limiting those and and uh, you know whether it be mass socially distancing, et cetera, et cetera. Like I mentioned earlier, I uh, feel pretty fortunate that. Uh, they decided that they were going to take this on, the Penticton Curling Club. And uh, very, very, very thankful to them and the sponsors that, uh, you know, stood by them. And to make this happen, uh, it's uh, be a shame to get in a situation where we, we don't have these events uh, and, and they don't come back. Uh, so I'm very hopeful for the future for this event and, and others. Uh, hopefully we can take some learning from these. <laughs>
0: My next guest today is Sarah Benkaran, a 24-year-old who is in her third year of a PhD in cross-cultural psychology at the University of Quebec in Montreal, focusing on access to mental health care services for cultural minorities. Sarah was born in Canada, her mother is Canadian, and her father is originally from Morocco. Sarah began curling at the age of eight at a small club in the West Island of Montreal. She competed in junior events throughout Quebec and Ontario, where she played against players that went on to represent Quebec at both the Canadian Juniors and at the Canadian Championships, the Scotties Tournament of Hearts. After some time away from curling, Sarah has returned to the sport and is currently playing out of the Montreal West Curling Club. She joins me to discuss her experiences as a Canadian Muslim competing in the sport of curling and to share how she believes the curling community can make the sport more welcoming for her and other individuals from racialized groups. To provide more context for the audience, uh, could you take a few moments to tell me a little bit more about yourself and what led you to choose your area of expertise?
3: Yeah, I have to say that you did a pretty good job of summarizing my life um, before, Um, but my life is pretty jam-packed. I am a full-time service manager at Kids Help Phone, and I help run Crisis Text Line in Canada. Um, We have a team of about 50 clinical supervisors and 2,000 volunteers from coast to coast to coast in Canada providing mental health and crisis support via text message, um, which you can imagine is pretty busy during the pandemic. And I'm also a full-time student uh, doing my PhD in cross-cultural psychology. And to tell you the truth, I didn't really line myself up to going to cross-cultural psychology. Initially, um, when I was an undergrad, there was a psychology lab looking for someone to do stats and who was familiar with intercultural relations. And I fit, that, I fit both those categories, and I applied and got in. Um, and obviously, it was something that I was, was important to me um, to think about culture and intercultural relations. But when I joined this first lab um, in 2014, during, at the beginning of my undergrad, I really sparked an interest for intercultural relations and its effect on mental health. Obviously, it's something that has affected me personally, uh, especially growing up in a curling community, being one of the only racialized people around. It was something that I pr- didn't have words to put on. Um, but definitely once I started doing the research, I realized that there was a lot a lot I personally connect to into the research and decided to pursue my PhD in this specific area.
0: You just utilized a term I wasn't familiar with before you and I first connected, Sarah. To be honest with you, we hear so many terms being used these days, whether it's person of color, visible minority, non-white, et cetera. Can you explain why racialized person might be the better term to
3: use? Um, so over the past decade, racialized person has become probably the preferred term in academia, and social justice fields, um, and it's spread into the vocabulary more generally. And one of the reasons is that it recognizes that race is a social construct. And to me personally, um, it puts the fault and the responsibility to change on the perpetrators of of race-based violence and discrimination. Um, It's also the term that's used by both the Ontario Human Rights Commission and the Canadian Human Rights Commission. Um, So that's the word I use personally that I've seen in my research, also recognizing that um, racialized people have words that they will use to describe themselves, and we do need to res- respectful of that.
0: You first started to curl at the age of eight, even though you did not grow up in a typical curling environment. Uh, how were you introduced to the sport, and what was it about curling that hooked you in enough that you went on to play competitively at the junior level?
3: Yeah, that's the question I get all the time, actually. Um, and I'll tell you the story kind of how I remember it or how it's been built in my mind at this point. Um, so when I was young, I was swimming. I started swimming very young. Was doing it competitively. We wake up before school and go to swimming practice. And one day we realized that um, my face was always getting puffy. I was always getting really red. Um, and we discovered that I had a chlorine sensitivity. And so the choice to continue swimming wasn't wasn't a direction that I had to go. I could go in. Um, and so my mom opened the newspaper. At the time, you had programs in the newspaper in the spring and in the fall, um, and you could look at activities, so soccer and different activities for kids, um, and there was an advertisement for an open house at the Bay Derby Curling Club, and I saw that, and I said, okay, I want to go curling, um, and I don't know if it was to spite her or if I was mad about um, not swimming, um, but that's how it felt at the time, and so I said, I want to go curling, and she said, okay, you can choose whatever you want. Let's take you to the curling club. Um, No one had really ever heard about curling before, but she'd committed to saying I could do whatever I wanted. So she took me and I can't explain it necessarily, but I stepped on the ice and I loved it. I think it was a really good combination for me between strategy and my mind that was very Cartesian, thinking about math, thinking about angles um, and doing sports was something I always loved. And so that mix worked out really well for me.
0: So, Sarah, I'm guessing that you did not run into many other players wearing hijabs when you competed on the junior curling circuit in Quebec. Were you apprehensive of how you'd be received when traveling to different towns and clubs for events? And what was your experience like in those first few junior seasons?
3: So, no, actually, that I know of that I'd ever seen, I was the only curler that I'd come into contact with who was wearing the hijab. I think right now there might be some, maybe one or two other curlers at the junior level Um, who I've seen through social media, but um, definitely not something that was the norm. And I don't know that I was apprehensive. I think I had deep-rooted fear of being different or not fitting in more generally. Um, And I'm still trying to figure and parse out um, what is specific to curling and what was maybe my life more generally at the time. Um, Coming especially from a mixed family, you're used to getting those questions. Like, how come your father's brown and you're not? Um, Or how come you're not Catholic? Um, How come you don't celebrate Christmas? But I don't know that it was specifically curling related. And I have to say my coaches and my teammates were wonderful. Um, They never pointed out anything in terms of the hijab, um, really made me feel included. Um, I'd say when I really started to notice the difference is when I did start traveling on the junior curling circuit in Quebec and in Ontario and going to those smaller towns and starting to get those strange looks when I walked into the club and nothing necessarily explicit at first, but just those looks, people turned their heads. And I remember one time in particular, I was in Northern Quebec for a tournament and somebody walked up to me and they said, Hey, can I ask you something? And I said, sure. And they said, why do you wear that thing on your head? Um, And then that's kind of where, when they hit me that, Hey, like maybe people are looking at me differently or I felt different. And it became much more, I became much more hyper aware of it even. And I have to say one thing that happened more often were microaggressions. Typically I would say that um, I didn't, At the time, for sure, didn't know how to put words on that, Um, didn't know what the term microaggression was or how it would affect me. But if there was something that really stood out to me in the curling world and traveling for curling was the lack of representation, the lack of diversity, and then um, these small comments that people made to me that made me feel different.
0: You just used a term in your last response that I think is important to discuss in further detail. Uh, One of the things I've learned through listening to many racialized people speak over the past several months is that racialized individuals regularly have to deal with a stream of microaggressions, words, comments, or questions that that people like me might not view as offensive or inappropriate when they are, in fact, offensive to a racialized person. Can you provide examples of some microaggressions that you've been subjected to at curling clubs and the impact they can have on a racialized person's experience at the curling club?
3: I don't know that it's so much offensive, and maybe this is my personal stance, um, but I think it's a lot about the underlying message that it's vehicleing. So when, somebody, when somebody's on the receiving end of a microaggression or a comment, um, you immediately feel excluded or different. And so some comments that I've heard and that I hear all the time still today are, well, I didn't know people like you curled, or I've never seen someone like you before. Um, And I don't think those are ill-intentioned at all um, or mean-spirited, and I think that actually they're maybe trying to start a conversation with me um, or include me, but it definitely vehicles that discriminatory idea that that I'm different, that I don't fit in, that I shouldn't be there, um, not in the words that are said, but maybe in the words that aren't said. Um, And then... I guess one thing that I want to mention, too, is that people often, when I bring up microaggressions, it's something that I study at school, actually, is that people tell me it's much to do about nothing. Why are, why are we making something so big or something so small? Um, and actually, there's a lot of scientific evidence that shows that there's a lasting impact on these microaggressions, um, both on mental health and well-being. And I think it's something important to, to recognize, to recognize that you're not necessarily doing anything wrong or not trying to do anything wrong, but learning from those experiences and really listening to marginalized communities and racialized people on how that makes them feel, how these comments really affect their day-to-day lives.
0: You were a promising young curler in Quebec, playing and having success against players that subsequently competed at the Canadian Juniors and even the Scotties, but you left the sport suddenly at the age of 17. Had you gotten to a point where you needed to focus on your studies, or did something else cause you to step away from the sport you had grown to love?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, And I haven't spoken about it a lot. I've thought thought a lot about speaking about this more. Um, And I think that I do have the duty to speak about it as a mental health professional now. Um, But I actually walked away from the sport at 17 um, because of an eating disorder. I had struggled for a long time through my elite curling um, with an eating disorder and decided that um, by myself and with people around me that it was time for me to get treatment. Um, I spent about a year in residential treatment for my eating disorder and have focused the last five years on really taking care of myself, my mental health, and getting back on the ice for the right reasons and for the love of the sport.
0: Before we started the interview, uh, Sarah, you mentioned to me that you had gotten back on the ice last season. How did it feel to be back on the curling ice playing a sport you still love?
3: Yeah, so I started curling again last season, more recreationally just to see how it would be and I realized how much I missed it. I think I tuned out curling for a lot of years. It was it was painful to look at people succeed in the place that I wanted to be. And so I had spent a lot of time not looking at the sport at all. And going back on the ice was everything I wished probably and more. I, I love the sport just as much as I used to. Um, I'm really lucky to have found something that I'm so passionate about. Um, and so things are going really well. This year I'm playing again a little bit more competitively and the goal would be Uh, If things go well, to get back on a woman's competitive team and make that try or run towards the values eventually for Quebec.
0: The sport of curling has long understood that it has a diversity problem. Some 11 years ago, Dr. Heather Mayer from the University of Waterloo published a well-received paper on the subject outlining a series of recommendations that she argued would make it easier for curling clubs to attract a more diversified membership. Back in 2009, it was reported that 87% of curlers considered themselves white. Here we are 11 years later, and anecdotal evidence from around the country indicates that although membership in clubs around the country may have diversified a little bit, the vast majority of curlers at all levels in Canada remain predominantly white it's one thing for a club to say that they are open to and even welcoming of people from a different racialized group. However, what type of concrete steps can a club take to make people from those different racialized groups feel welcomed at a club outside of a warm smile and perhaps a, hi, how you doing?
3: I've given a lot of thought to this, actually, and I don't know that I have exactly the right answer, but I do have some suggestions. Um, and one thing to think about is Friday night leagues, Um, Or Friday night leagues at my club, at least, is when we have potlucks after games or snacks, um, whatever night that might be at your club. Um, And think about small things. Think about the food. Um, I know that when I was traveling for curling, it would often happen that um, it would be a potluck and the main meal would be pork or beef, which as a Muslim, I don't eat. Um, And it would immediately make me feel like I didn't fit in. Um, There was nothing I could eat. My, My coach would go get me a salad and a piece of bread. Um, And just those small things are kind of coming back to microaggression, just small things that make you feel like you're not part of the community or you'll never be able to be part of the community. And another thing is obviously curling is centered around drinking um, or maybe isn't centered around drinking at the elite level or at the club level anymore, but um, there is definitely drinking in curling clubs after games and drinking is something that is not necessarily – um, for everybody, regardless of religious or cultural reasons, but especially when we're having, we're trying to diversify our curling clubs. Maybe having other options, other activities that don't revolve so much around drinking. Um, maybe it's having a menu with more non-alcoholic drinks, or maybe making some special virgin drinks um, make you feel included, something to order besides a Diet Coke or a Pepsi, because that's the only thing you can order. And so those are two things that I think are very easy to implement, even just with leagues. And then something that I've also spoken to my club about is having a diversity consultant or maybe an outreach coordinator on board of directors or board, a, board at your club, depending on how your club is structured. Um, and just really having the experts. I think we have the experts in the community. Um, if we can really pull them in and have them talk about what do we think we need, how do we get new communities in really pulling on the expertise of those around you to see how we can grow the sport.
0: One of the concerns that has been raised several times over the past few months is that many sports organizations view diversity as a freestanding policy without necessarily changing any of the underlying structure of the institution and its day-to-day operations that would help address the lack of diversity in the sport. In other words, organizations will tell you that they are open to even striving for increased diversity, yet not much of what they do on a day-to-day basis seems to include any tangible strategies geared at addressing their diversity problem. Curling Canada, as an example, was supportive of Dr. Amir's study back in 2009, yet here we are a decade later and the lack of diversity in the sport in this country continues to be a significant problem. Now, obviously, Curling Canada can't be held responsible for what each individual club does in the hopes of diversifying their membership. That said, as a racialized individual with dreams of competing at the national level, what step would you like to see Curling Canada take to help build the groundwork to make the sport of curling more inclusive and diversified in our country?
3: And again, I don't think I have all the answers. I've thought about it quite a bit. Um, It definitely fits very well into my expertise um, and my passion. Um, But I think change really does start from the top. Um, and it starts from the top more than a couple posts a year or mentioning that diversity is important or a policy that you can find somewhere on a website. Um, I think it's a commitment to change and a commitment to being able to speak to directly to athletes that are effective or affected by this um, particularly. And so one of the ideas that I've had and I've been toying with is Um, thinking about asking Curling Canada to make a council on diversity at the national level. Um, And so reaching out to the Curling community, seeing who you have in the community, seeing what experts you have. um, Once again, how do we pull on the resources we have in the community and really talking to those who are affected daily by these, these different and difficult situations to come together and brainstorm and create meaningful change. But I think it does start by Curling Canada, making an explicit effort to listen to athletes and not just elite athletes, but grassroots athletes um, who want to make the change and want to see the change in the sport, reach out and ask. I know personally I'm always so happy to answer questions um, about diversity and about um, inclusion in sports. And so, yeah, rely on your community and create an action plan that is actionable, but also that will create real change.
0: I've had several conversations over the past few months about the lack of diversity in the sport of curling, and one theme that keeps coming up is that the sport of curling could really use its own version of Tiger Woods, a player from a racialized group who would come up through the system, become an elite curler, and serve as an inspiration to other curlers from racialized groups. However, a scan of the players competing at the most recent Scotties, Breyer, Canadian Juniors, and even at the under-18s show that there's still much work to do and that curling is still far removed from developing its own version of Tiger Woods, at least in Canada. Do you believe that it will take curling's version of Tiger Woods to really help attract people from racialized groups to the sport in greater numbers, or could it be done without such an athlete to serve as inspiration and generate more interest for curling among racialized groups?
3: Yeah, I I've heard the analogy about Tiger Woods before and needing a Tiger Woods in curling or something similar. I don't know that I 100% agree. I think definitely we need the visibility. Um, I think it also once again falls on larger governing bodies, provincial and national, to to really encourage talent and help those young kids along, um, be it through some funding or through a program. For mentorship, there needs to be something in it for them. Curling, people often say curling is accessible, but curling is expensive when you play at a high level. I mean, the money goes up quickly. You're traveling all the time. When I was curling on the junior circuit, I was traveling every weekend. And that's a lot of money. Um, and not all families, racialized or not, um, have that kind of privilege. And so if we want to be reaching out to more um, youngsters of every background we need to have incentives and we need to help them along the way um and I think that that's the first step will it help to have um stars of the game or a Rachel holman or um a brad goop who are racialized um absolutely I I I would love to have had that when I was young to look on tv and see people that looked like me or um and have those people to look up on but I do think that there are other ways to go about it and we don't need to be waiting on somebody um, when we can take action ourselves.
0: The Black Lives Matters movement was front of mind for many people over the summer, and many athletes took to social media to support the movement and to open dialogue in their respective sports. Many curlers followed suit, posting supportive messages online and participating in Blackout Tuesday. What would be your message to the elite curlers around the country? How can they be agents of change in efforts to make their sport more inclusive above and beyond posting messages supportive of Black Lives Matters and other similar movements?
3: Yeah, so I, I definitely want to recognize that they're there is an important movement you need to I think posting about blackout shoes posting about orange t-shirt day is a good start but it's not enough Um, we need more than just passive action I think we need once again and the same thing that I think about curling Canada applies to high performance athletes you are the people that young curlers look up to people around the world look up to you're our celebrities and so being an ally is important, and being an ally means that you're doing the research, you're being vocal about the research you're doing, you're educating yourself, and being vocal about the education that you're um, receiving or that e- the learnings you've had. So something small, even like, hey, this is what I've been doing. For example, I've taken this course, I've learned this thing, um, and really taking a stand more than just with a post here or there on social media is important. And once again, um, we have so many high performance athletes now who are professional um, and who are also um, making money through different means in curling. So having curling camps, I can definitely think about um, Team Gushu has a camp and Homan who have a camp and many of those higher teams that have a lot of impact on the younger generation and making sure that that is meaningful, making sure that you're including and making accessible your camps and your different outreach activities to athletes of all um, cultural groups and especially racialized groups who are not traditionally part of curling making an active stance and saying out loud we will include you we want to include you Uh, and then showing how actionably you'll do that is I think the next step that high performance athletes curlers in Canada need to take if they're serious about diversity in curling.
0: And finally, Sarah, what will be your message to other young people interested in curling but concerned that the sport is not welcoming to people from the racialized group?
3: I guess to end on a positive note, I feel like I've been a little bit negative. Curling is fun. I've uh, curling is going curling and curling the sport has really been my passion for the last fifteen years. I, I've fell in love with it. Um, and curling is fun at the end of the day. Going to the curling club is fun. Um, people are nice and welcoming and there needs to be change and change is important. Um, But don't be shy, try it out, reach out, ask questions about curling. Um, I'm happy to start that conversation with you, but try it out. It's fun. Um, And at the end of the day, I don't think I have a huge inspirational message besides go for it. Try it out. It's a fun community to be part of.
0: And that does it for this week's episode. A big thank you to John Schuster, Mike McCune, and Sarah Bankaran for joining me on this season premiere. Don't forget to check out the Two Girls in the Game podcast and the Curling Legends podcast. You're listening to the From the Hack Curling podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated partnership.